0: Welcome back to the Very Short Introductions podcast. From public health to Buddhist ethics, soft matter to classics and art history to globalization, I'll showcase a concise and original introduction to a wide range of subjects for wherever your curiosity may take you. So here is today's very short introduction. My name is Catherine Wilson and I'm an Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of York. Earlier I taught philosophy in universities in the US Canada, Germany, and Scotland, and at present I'm in Venice working with a research group in the history of philosophy. My book is a very short introduction to Epicureanism. It's about the philosophy of Epicurus, who lived in the fourth century BCE, and his Roman follower Lucretius, who lived in the period of Julius Caesar in the first century BCE. The book is mainly about the influence of the Epicurean philosophers on science, ethics and politics after their writings were rediscovered during the scientific revolution and the enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries, after a long gap. During that blackout period, most of what was believed about Epicureanism came from the testimony of their influential and powerful rivals and detractors. The Stoics were their main rivals, and the Christian theologians were their main detractors. The Epicureans were caricatured as loose living, even as pigs and drunkards. But once rediscovered and represented to the reading public, Epicureanism has had an enormous effect on scientific thinking and also on ethics and politics down to the present day. Many people today, though, think Epicureanism is some kind of lifestyle philosophy centered around food. The image of the Epicurean that comes to mind is that of a rich, dandy, fussy and privileged. But all this is really off the mark. In fact, Epicureanism is a philosophy that covers every aspect of experience in a tightly integrated way and is explicitly critical of self-indulgent behavior. I have to tell you right off the bat that I am not a classical scholar of ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, but a specialist in the history and philosophy of science. I got interested in Epicureanism in a somewhat roundabout way. I was working on the early microscope, as it was invented in the 17th century, and the excited hopes it raised when people thought they were actually going to be able to see the basic building blocks of nature and how they interacted. The idea was that knowledge is power. With this wonderful instrument, they would be able to understand and control all of nature, making new medicines, curing diseases, and turning lead into gold. That, of course, didn't happen then, but the premonition that understanding how the invisible to the naked eye building blocks get put together was going to be the key to technology was completely right. As I was working on these topics, I noticed that there was a lot of negative affect surrounding the whole subject of these building blocks, the atoms of nature, and what their existence implied. At the time, all literate people knew that atomism and the search for physical explanations in place of supernatural ones was the basic doctrine of the Epicureans. Epidemics, the Epicureans claimed, for example, came from toxic particles in the air, not from God as punishment or from witches and sorcerers out of malice. 17th century theologians were made uneasy by this approach and Epicureanism indeed is either strictly atheistic or at least incompatible with any major world religion, except possibly Buddhism. Moral philosophers too, like Immanuel Kant, seemed to be up in arms about Epicureanism, and even some of the more scientifically-minded philosophers thought it was crazy and impossible. So I started investigating this opposition and how Epicureanism broke through these barriers anyway. I came to this topic from the science side, in other words, not the lifestyle or ethics side, but later I found those topics just as intriguing. There are three main things to know about Epicureanism. They fall under the heading of what actually exists in reality, what nature is like and what to expect from it, and how to behave so as to minimize anxiety and suffering. First, Epicureanism has a simple but radical theory of reality from which everything else follows. Reality consists of a multitude. Some versions would even say an infinity of material particles invisible to the naked eye, indestructible atoms that have coalesced into visible objects. The atoms individually have no color, no taste, no smell, only solidity, dimensions, and movement. But through their combinations and interactions, the whole visible, colorful, noisy world of animal, vegetable, and mineral comes into being. There is an infinite number of these worlds, they said, with different animals, vegetables, and minerals. This theory excludes a lot. For example, incorporeal souls, ghosts action at a distance, and a god or gods who pay attention to what's happening on earth. The soul is just a collection of material particles. And if there are gods, Lucretius thought they were imaginary or just figures in dreams. And Epicurus said they lived in their own world and paid no attention to us. They, too, must be made of atoms like everything else. How did these ancient philosophers hit on this idea about atoms? There are wonderful arguments from observation in Lucretius, including the famous reference to dust particles you can see dancing in the sunbeam, and to stone steps worn away particle by particle by centuries of footsteps, and other arguments about how the colors of the sea change with the light. But the main argument is that there must be basic and indestructible units to construct the world out of. We now have something a bit different in contemporary science, chemical atoms of the elements, and more basic subatomic particles in physics, which are not really solid and dimensional and moving. And we now have action at a distance. But unless you think modern physics provides a basis for ghosts and incorporeal souls, And I'm not denying that there are people who think that some of the wider implications of Epicurean atomism are the same. Second is the idea that everything is in flux and perishable. Only the atoms are permanent and indestructible. The world will eventually disintegrate into its individual atoms and in much shorter intervals, each of us will too. The material soul will just evaporate away at death. But death is not to be feared because we will not be there to experience it. And meanwhile, nature is always changing and changing in unpredictable ways because of the role of chance. Unlike our modern atoms, or even 17th century atoms, which are obedient to the laws of nature, the behavior of Epicurean atoms is not predictable and new combinations are constantly forming and humans have free will. So creativity, invention, and innovation come into the world. Long before Darwin, the Epicureans had a theory of natural selection for living beings. All sorts of animal type atomic combinations, they thought, were formed by chance, but only combinations of parts that could live, feed themselves, and reproduce lasted. Some 18th century scientists took this idea seriously and argued that by chance species could give rise to entirely different species. But without the weight of evidence that Darwin assembled later, this theory seemed purely fanciful to most people, and the theological implications frightened Darwin himself. The idea of nature in flux has a lot of resonance. Anything composite has a finite lifespan. This goes not only for physical objects that break down or get moldy or rusty, but for political parties, relationships, and empires. The more complex an entity is, the more chance plays a role in its evolution, and the more unpredictable is its future. So don't expect more stability than nature can deliver, the Epicureans said. But there is always the potential for happy surprises, because new combinations are always coming into existence. Third is the idea that for humans, like other animals, the avoidance of pain guides and should guide our behavior. While the enjoyment of pleasure is natural and permitted. This idea went against a very ingrained tradition that says suffering is noble and should be born with pride and pleasure is degrading. The Stoics had a lot to say about this. And so of course did many of the major world religions, which said that pleasure was a reward for endurance and could only be enjoyed in an afterlife. For rulers, it was tremendous ideology. The idea that the purpose of government is rather to promote human welfare was not obvious to our ancestors. It took centuries of Epicurean influence to put this idea on the table. Like Epicurean animals, political systems evolve. Ethics, law, and government are constructed by us, For the Epicurean, if an institution is not preventing harm and making enjoyment possible for as many as possible, it is not doing its job and we can change it. Ethics too is aimed at harm prevention, the avoidance of harm to oneself and injury to others by intelligent choice and avoidance. According to the Epicureans, two things especially give us lots of pleasure and they have nothing really to do with food and drink or setting and achieving major goals. The world's problems and our individual problems, they thought, arise because of greed and ambition, trying to get things such as power, status, and wealth, and clinging to things that will not make us happy, even if we get them and manage to hold on to them. One thing that really is pleasurable, they thought, is trying to understand how the world works on the basis of experience and theory construction. The other great source of pleasure is talking to and spending time with friends and people we love and find interesting. The Epicureans thought friendship, not total self-sufficiency, was life's greatest good. Friends not only help us, but make life more interesting and even challenging for us. The Stoics, the main philosophical rivals of the Epicureans, insisted that self-mastery of our attitudes, reactions and emotions was the key to a good life. Even under horrible conditions they maintained, such as being tortured or losing a child to death, you could remain calm and untroubled if you just chose to take a certain detached perspective on the situation. I can agree with the Stoics that accepting the inevitable gracefully and not losing your temper and lashing out at people are good ideas, but they can be carried too far. The Epicureans doubted that the mind really had so much power. Instead, since we are essentially open to experience, open to the world, we need to escape or avoid situations where we are suffering or likely to suffer. Of course, we can't run away from every challenge just to minimize risk. No pain, no gain, as they say. But even in dangerous situations, you can take precautions. And in high conflict situations, You can aim to reduce other people's motivations to hurt you. So that's all we have time for. And I hope I've been able to give you a sense of what real Epicureanism is all about. But there's no substitute for getting to the Epicurean writings themselves. And fortunately, they are now widely available in print and online. Thank you for listening to the Very Short Introductions podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast app to receive new episodes directed to your feed. All of our episodes, new and old, can also be found on SoundCloud and YouTube at OUP Academic.